KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, an update on the Writers Guild strike against the Hollywood studios with Josh Gondelman. He's an Emmy Award-winning writer for his work on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver on HBO. He's also a regular on NPR's news quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Also, one of the Senate Democrats up for re-election in 2024 is Sherrod Brown of Ohio, one of our heroes. We spoke with him in 2020 about politics and history and how he's won re-election in a state that is increasingly Republican. We'll listen to that interview later in the show. First up, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here as always. Well, we start today with bad news for Biden, bad news for all of us. Biden's approval ratings have slipped to a new low. More Americans than not doubt his mental acuity. And his support against leading Republican challengers is shakier than it was at this point four years ago. Just to review the numbers here, his overall approval rating stands at 36%. Just in February, a couple of months ago, it was 42%. His previous low was about the same, 37%. That was in early 2022. His disapproval uh, rating stands at 56%, including 47% who disapprove strongly. Now, I should say this is a little different from most other polls, which don't show any significant decline in Biden's poll approval ratings in recent months. But... The most disturbing thing here is that his approval rating is underwater among the groups that supported him by wide margins in 2020, 26% approval among Americans under 30, 42% among non-white adults, 41% among urban residents, the city is really the basis of the Democratic Party, among independents, 57% approve of Biden, 30% disapprove. This is, uh, what, alarming, upsetting, disturbing? Well, I think the poll is a bit of an outlier, but you, you're getting me, as I'm speaking, in the middle of writing about it. And <laughs> good. what I find really disquieting is the doubts about his age. And yes. I, I, I am beginning, I have begun... Uh, I may go back and re-edit, but I have begun the piece that I am writing saying it is a real possibility that voters will go to the polls in 2024, basically supporting the Democratic positions on uh, abortion, on the right to vote, on domestic investment, on the economy, on fairer taxes, and still vote to make Donald Trump the president because they have real questions about Joe Biden's age and his health as he grows older. I think that is a, uh, a, a real issue. And, uh, you know, if Biden's polls look like this in 10 months from now, that may be a little late, but I think that would, it would be time for some electable younger Democrat, I think, to challenge him. Because if indeed Americans go to the polls believing more on the Democratic side of the question than the Republican, but yet do not re-elect Joe Biden, I would argue it is his age, which will toss us into uh, a world of horror. 
a Republicans elected president. I've talked about the approval statistics. They also have voting preferences. 44% of voting age adults say they would definitely or probably vote for Trump. 38% said they would definitely probably or probably vote for Biden. Let's note that this is voting age adults, not the more uh, reliable, likely right. voters. And of right. course, all presidential elections, given the facts of the Electoral College, come down to a few states, you know, Wisconsin, Arizona, North Carolina, uh, Georgia. Well, I think we know from Biden's declaration of candidacy that he's running sort of contrasting his values with the Republican values and, and, and you're, you know, uh, reclaiming the word freedom. Yes. Freedom over your, your own body, uh, freedom to get uh, uh, an abortion, freedom uh, to vote, which Republicans are trying to curtail. That is the contrast he needs to make. But I think he also is going to have to somehow reassure the American public. And this, I don't know that he can do that he won't be non-compass mentis two years into his second term. Uh, that is also a challenge, and I don't know how he meets that. Well, it's been suggested that he needs to go before the public in much more open forums than he's had uh, until now, take questions from all comers, have frequent press conferences, show that he is quick on his feet, that he's in command of the facts, that he's but, charming and warm and delightful. You said, but. But the very fact that his handlers have kept him from doing that only increases the apprehension that he yes. can't. And of course, uh, if he, he only needs to make one gaffe, one slip, and that will become the Republican ad that everyone will see a hundred times. And the problem here is that Joe Biden has been making gaffes and slip, slips from the time he was first elected to the yes. Senate in his early 30s. Yes. So, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that <laughs> there are levels and levels to this problem. There's one other factor that we haven't talked about. Trump by by November 2024, maybe a convicted rapist and maybe even a convicted felon, which would add a certain shadow to his candidacy. You would think, although you would think most Americans, if they're ever going to perceive a shadow around Trump, would have already perceived it. And we will just have to see where where shadow addition and growth <laughs> uh, is still possible. I'd say one other thing. While a majority of Democrats in this poll say they do not want uh, Biden to run in 2024, they don't really have anybody else that they would rather have run. Well, that that's the issue. And, you know, I mean, Gavin Newsom has clearly been throwing out signs that should Biden not run. Uh, here I am. I happen to think Newsom would be a singularly weak candidate with working class voters, particularly white working class voters. I think someone like the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, would be a strong candidate. Uh, but what I think and what happens have often very little to do with each other. Last week, we learned that the United Auto Workers decided to withhold an endorsement of Joe Biden's 2024 candidacy. This was in response to his accelerated program for the transition to electric vehicles, requiring that by 2032, 
two-thirds of all new passenger cars must be all electric. It seemed to a lot of people that the unions were once again opposing the climate movement and trying to hold on to their jobs manufacturing gasoline vehicles. Is that really their problem with Biden at this point? Well, there's a lot uh, that Biden has done that poses anything but a problem to unions. His is in many ways the most pro-union presidency we've ever had, and certainly his appointments in the Labor Department, at the National Labor Relations Board, anything that uh, tries to defend workers are the most arduous defenders and the most creative defenders of workers' interests that have ever been in the federal government. That said, going green can result in uh, a loss of certain jobs, just as all innovations cause uh, a loss of certain jobs. the number of workers on assembly lines in auto plants and steel factories has been moving steadily downwards for many years because much of the work is done by robots. But they've not historically been reduced due to a government acceleration of, in this case, a particular production process that requires fewer workers, many fewer workers, uh, to build a, uh, a electric car than is required to build a, a gas-powered car. Uh, so yeah, that that is an issue. Uh, the union understands it's an issue, and they want to try to get as much of a just transition guarantee, I suspect, uh, out of the administration as is possible. A just transition. And some people are also saying some sort of guarantee or at least help with assuring that the jobs in the new battery factories and electric vehicle assembly factories should be union jobs. Well, that is certainly an emphasis of the administration. Uh, You know, there's one real obstacle to that, and it's uh, all of the holes in the National Labor Relations Act, which make it hard for uh, private sector workers to unionize uh, unless uh, the employer is okay with that. And auto employers, the big three, uh, which have historically had their own workers under union contracts since the 1930s, uh, every time though they put a factory in the South, it's been an issue as to whether it will go union. And certainly all of the uh, German and Japanese manufacturers who have uh, put factories in the South, uh, all of those are non-union. So it's it, it's a real issue. Some of the big three, some of their proposed electric car uh, fat- factories, electric battery factories in northern states, they've said, okay, you know, we, we can accept uh, unions here, but we'll have to see where this goes. The administration has certainly tried to push for that, as it's pushed for uh, buying America uh, when it comes to government procurement. There are ways in which a government can demand certain wage and other conditions be met, which pushes uh, any new facility towards unionization. But American employers are fiercely opposed to unions. And so it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Well, next, I'd like to talk about the debt limit debate. Republicans in the House, of course, have been refusing to raise the debt limit without major concessions on social spending. They're willing to risk default by the United States. But you have recently written in the prospect that Biden has the constitutional power 
to raise the debt limit himself, and he does not need the House to act to prevent default, which everyone always for the last decades has assumed was the case. You point to the 14th Amendment, Section 3, ignored for the last 150 years. The validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion shall not be questioned, close quote, shall not be questioned. That seems a little vague to me. Perhaps you could explain. Well, uh, there are law professors much better versed in this kind of thing than I who have said he should rely on that. One is uh, just in uh, today or yesterday's, I forget which, New York Times, uh, Lawrence Tribe of Harvard, an eminent constitutional scholar, uh, who who says that uh, the president can simply say, look, I'm obeying this law, which is in the Constitution, as opposed to the debt limit law, which was created willy-nilly by Congress in 1917 and is not in the Constitution. And as president, I am obliged to uphold the Constitution of the United States in my oath of office. Uh, So that would be tossed into the lap of the Supreme Court. Then the prospect also ran an article by a UCLA law professor, Jonathan Zasloff, who said that were the country to go into default, uh, someone who uh, held United States bonds, a U.S. bond, could simply go to court and say, this is violating that section of the Constitution <laughs> that says the debt of the United States shall not be questioned. Then um, Jonathan Zasloff suggested this could uh, be raised in the Ninth Circuit, which is very likely to find that the bondholder is correct. And, uh, you know, it, it would be awkward for the Supreme Court in many ways to overturn that, though this court has not shied at being awkward to the point of outrageous. So uh, there are ways, I think, out of this. uh, And I think negotiating with the Republicans maybe is a decent show for a bit. So Biden can then go on television and say they want to take away, you know, your Social Security, your Medicare, your Medicaid, uh, any anything to make the climate uh, less destructive. And I'm not going to do that then he would set the predicate for invoking the 14th Amendment. And of course, our friends in the conservative majority base their judgments, they tell us, on the basis of the original intent of the authors. And we know a lot about the original intent of the authors of the 14th Amendment. Eric Foner is a historian of the 14th Amendment. Uh, As the closing clause says, this is about the the debt incurred in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, namely the Civil War, Congress was worried uh, that if the Democrats returned to power after the Civil War, they would try to repudiate the debt and maybe even make uh, the United States pay the debt of the Confederacy. And to prevent that, the the House, the Senate, the President, and two-thirds of the states passed this amendment to make sure that no one could prevent the payment of the debt. They were thinking about the Civil War debt, but it's obviously not limited to the Civil War. 
uh, debt. So no, it uses the word including. I think including. So it doesn't th- th- say expressly only. Correct, and it explicitly forbids Congress or anyone from refute from repudiating or defaulting on the debt. So the original intent is perfectly clear, and I assume Clarence Thomas will will seek that out and then make his judgment accordingly were this to cross his desk. You're smiling. Well, I'm smiling because I don't think facts uh, and precedents really have much effect, uh, at least over Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito. I think the other justices might consider ruling in favor of invoking that clause as an act of some chutzpah, but I have been wrong before. (laughs) I also wanted to talk about another poll, a Bloomberg poll on wealth in America that showed most Americans do not have the financial resources to cover a surprise expense of $400 without going into debt. Uh, Just over a third of respondents said they had enough cash on hand to pay a $400 emergency expense. It's a little bit uh, uh, higher for people who have a credit card that they could put their uh, debt on. But 17% of all Americans said they would not be able to pay a $400 emergency expense at all. Uh, And it also shows that this kind of unexpected expenses are not uncommon. 44% of respondents say they had had such an expense in the prior month. Most frequently, car repairs followed by medical bills. And many respondents reported they'd been hit with more than one in the last few months. So Two-thirds of Americans do not have enough cash to pay a $400 surprise expense. What is to be done about that? What is to be done about that is to greatly increase the minimum wage and to change law and unionization, because it was only when America was substantially unionized that you had a working class that didn't face an inability to meet uh, whatever the equivalent then might have been of a $400 bill. Uh, that they had to pay. Broadly shared prosperity takes a social contract that enables workers to claim a greater share of the uh, revenue they produce than they've been allowed to over the last 40 years or so. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Honk if you like words. That was one of the signs on the picket line outside Paramount Studios in Hollywood last week. 11,500 members of the Writers Guild are on strike. Picketing studios in Los Angeles and New York, one of them is Josh Gondelman. He's an Emmy Award-winning TV writer and a comedian. He recently worked as head writer and executive producer for Desus and Mero on Showtime, where the guests included Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama. 
He also uh, contributed to the final season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And before that, he spent five years at Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, where he won four Emmys, two Peabody Awards, and three WGA Awards. And he's a regular on the NPR News quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which has a weekly audience of six million people. We reached him today in New York City. Josh Gondelman, welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you for the um, the thorough introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I understand you were on the picket line today. Was that outside NBC at 30 Rock in Midtown Manhattan? Today it was, I was at Silver Cup Studios in Queens where they were, sh uh, the plan was to shoot American Horror Story. I got there in the kind of second wave of picketers, but they showed up starting at 5 a.m. and they saw a lot of solidarity from Teamsters and lighting riggers who, who didn't cross the picket line and, and shut down production while we were there on, on a lot of elements of the show, which was really inspiring to see that level of union solidarity across these other unions. Well, in your piece on the strike for the nation, you describe yourself as someone who hates conflict but loves fairness. Uh, how did this uh, lead you to the picket line this week? I, I do. I hate conflict, but I love fairness. And the fairness, my love of fairness is winning out because all that we're asking for as writers is a, a fair chance in making a sustainable living in the industry that, that we were working in. Um, you know, our, the, the asks basically amount to 2% of these studios operating profits per year. And uh, we're ju it's just enough to, so that people it, it, with shorter seasons and mini rooms, right, with people working um, at l maybe lower than their established rates for these, these weeks before uh, a show is even greenlit. And also the way that residuals have changed as more and more shows move to streaming, right? And reuse and re-airing becomes kind of a different idea now that something can go on, say Netflix, and then be there for a year. And that is one reuse, essentially, you know, there's a one fee and, and that doesn't account for success based on ratings at all, um, because that's all in a black box still, you know, as far as we know, like the Netflix's numbers. So I'm out there for fairness, despite my natural conflict-driven anxiety. And my dad <laughs> texted me uh, yesterday when he read my piece for The Nation, and he said, well, what kind of look is it if I, if I, someone on the union leadership, right? I'm on the Writers Guild of America East Council. He said, what is, what's the look if someone on the council says that they, they were anxious to join a picket line? And I said, Dad, I'm a comedy writer. If I wasn't anxious about something, people would think there's something wrong. <laughs> 98% of the writers voted in favor of the strike, yeah. really unprecedented. Yeah. And the conditions that caused this strike have been percolating mm -hmm. for years. I guess the biggest change, as you've said, is the rise of streaming and, and mm -hmm. the new companies that do it. The last writer strike was in 2007. At that point, Amazon and Apple were not making movies mm -hmm. and Netflix was a mail order DVD business. And yeah. you were about 10 years old in 2007. <laughs> yeah, let's say I was 10 years old in 2007. <laughs> let's let's um, let's um keep my youthful appearances for when, when I'm able to work in entertainment again, when we're off the picket line. But yeah, it's a, it's a different world. Things have really changed in terms of how entertainment is distributed, right? Film and television, it's very different. Different. It's um, it, it it's it's changed everything about how people are paid and how, what a season of television is. And we're not trying to fight against 
the way people are distributing TV. We're just asking for, well, we're doing the same work. We're asking for fair pay, the same, the same pay. We're asking for if they're going to make, but if we're going to make 10 episodes of a season of, of television and, and that's going to be a writer's work for half a year, a year, right? And, and writers are going to be employed for shorter terms. We're just asking for those jobs to not disappear, for writers to not become uh, a gig economy type profession. We, we want it to be a sustainable career. In 2007, the use of written material through new media channels was a big deal. But that was, we're talking about clips posted on YouTube. And now it's the location for where people watch so much entertainment. And, and so, I think that is, it is just the, the whole landscape has changed and we're just trying to account for that and, and keep writing a sustainable profession. You say the studios are trying to turn writing into a gig economy profession. Mm-hmm. The LA Times last week had a response from a studio spokesman. He pointed out that gig workers do not have a health plan and they are also given tasks by an app. Your boss is not an app. Not yet. That is a ridiculous point to make. Absolutely, they would. And people talk about AI as a potential generator for written material. I mean, AI could be a studio head, right? Like, there's no, there's no way that that it would be impossible. They just people make too much money off that. Like, twelve people in the industry. But to go back a step to the first (laughs) point of there's no health fund, there's no pension fund for gig economy workers. The the way that the studios have proposed kind of dismantling the protections for term employment, right? Being able to be employed for a minimum of a certain number of weeks. And and there's currently no minimum for comedy variety writers on streaming. So that really does exist. And now it's been proposed a a day rate for comedy variety writers, um, (laughs) which means essentially, yes, there is a health and pension fund, but if you don't make enough money to earn into it, then it doesn't apply to you. And that's what they're also doing with minimums, right? Their proposal for minimum salary for late night, which does not exist at this point. There is no minimum salary that they have to pay comedy variety writers on streaming services. And they propose, they conceded that they would go up to the minimum for broadcast shows, which sounded great. But then they said, only if it has a budget of uh, $700,000 per episode. There are currently no comedy variety shows being made with a budget of $700,000 per episode. So basically they're saying, we'll give you the minimum if we spend more money than anyone has ever spent on these shows. <laughs> the traditional Hollywood studios, as opposed to the new streamers like Amazon and Apple and Netflix, the traditional studios say they are losing billions. Paramount last week announced it had a net loss of $1.1 billion in the first quarter this year. And after that announcement, Paramount stock fell 28%, even though the Paramount Plus streaming service now has more than 60 million subscribers. Disney is cutting $5.5 billion by laying off employees. Writers like you say they are having a tough time, but the CEOs of the old-time studios are, are saying they are the ones having a, a, a tough time. And what do you know about the suffering of studio CEOs? <laughs> well, look, I... Uh, no disrespect to how stressful their job must be, but you'd think that the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation would take a little of the sting out of that <laughs> suffering, right? Eight studio heads combined, eight CEOs are making in a year, made in 2022, over $770 million, which is nearly twice what we are asking for 
total for all of our membership, right? That's what it would cost them is about $430 million per year, which still is only 2% of the operating profit for the studios, right? It sounds like a lot of money, but it's it's 2% of their profit. And it is about 60% of what they paid eight CEOs, <laughs> period. And so that is just wild to me that they would, first of all, claim that they don't have money to pay writers. Clearly, they have money to pay someone. And to me, when CEO compensation hits $40 million, you know, executives are always saying like, well, if you don't want to do it, we'll find someone who'll do it for cheaper. You didn't think they couldn't offer these guys 20 million. Nobody would have taken 20 million to do that job. But I, I want to go back to your first point a little bit that they're saying they're losing money, right? They're, they're all uh, crying poverty at this point, but they're all beholden to year over year, quarter over quarter growth for their shareholders, right? So it's not just enough that they're making, that they make money. They have to make more money than they've ever made every single year. And that is not uh, conducive to, first of all, creating good art, let's say. And even if you throw art out the window, it's not conducive to fair treatment of employees, right? It's not, it's not conducive to any kind of humane compensation or, or, or treatment. And everybody, every company says they're, they're losing all, all this money. They're not profitable. They're posting in 2021. These companies posted a total of about $28 billion in operating profit. They're not shifting to streaming because they think the technology is neat and they want a new gadget. <laughs> they're shifting into streaming and they're devouring each other, right? So there are only a few left because they think that's what will make them the most money in the long term. They're the ones spending this money. They're the ones choosing to produce all, all this entertainment. And all we're asking is a cut of, of the profits commensurate with the work we do and its importance to the industry. I understand that artificial intelligence is also an issue. Uh, you want the studios to agree that they will only work with human beings. I asked ChatGPT, write a joke about the writer's strike. Okay. Here's, here's what ChatGPT came back with. Why did the studios cross the picket line during the writer's strike? Answer, to get to the other screenplay. Okay. Are we laughing? I, I'm... I'm mostly just mortified by the concept, <laughs> but it is our stance as a guild that writing work is done by writers who are people. So what we came to the table with was the proposal that AI not be allowed to generate scripts and not be able to generate underlying intellectual property that then writers could be hired to rewrite into script form for less money than it would, you know, than they would make to generate original ideas. And the, the studios came back with uh, a proposal of, well, once a year we'll talk about the state of the industry and what IP is not in the meantime, we'll agree to your rules. Just once a year, we'll update you on how thoroughly we've managed to uh, screw you through chat GPT and other AI devices and, and, and programs, you know? So I think it, it was incredibly offensive and it really jeopardizes writing as a profession. Seems to me though, the chat GPT joke is not going to jeopardize writing no, as a profession. I mean, it, fortunately, when you see the, the output of these, of these algorithmic apps, right? Which are basically someone recently described them. And I wish I could credit who it was, but I think I heard it third hand as like a, plagiarism jukebox 
because yes. it just pulls, it learns from other writing and it pulls from other writing. So it's not like there's this genius robot brain. It just knows all the things that have been said and recombines them. So like, even if that's all it is now and that's unfit for production or even unfit to use to make an outline or a draft down the line, these programs will get more sophisticated. And I don't think we want to get caught back footed saying like, yeah, sure. This isn't a threat to us, even though, you know, that, that joke isn't going to um, kill in front of a live crowd. It's not going <laughs> to work on a script, but eventually, you know, I think as these, these things get more sophisticated, whether it's just more sophisticated plagiarism, we don't want to leave the door open for jobs to be outsourced to automation. And th and that's the same as a lot of industries. This yeah. isn't just, you know, a lot of these issues feel like they're very writer specific, but, but the big overall idea here is that it's workers who do the work that these profits are based on standing up to these giant corporations and their, their feeling of entitlement to all of the profits and not just a share based on the work that they do. This strike could go on for a long time. The last strike in 2007 lasted 100 days. That's more than three months. Netflix says it has three months of new programming ready to go. The strike before that was in 1988. That one lasted 153 days, five months. That would take us into September. I understand the WGA has a strike fund of something like $20 million. So it seems like both sides are ready for a very long strike. Yeah. I mean, it, it, these problems are really serious, but I will point out the writers don't want to be on strike, right? We would like to be back to work. We'd be like, we'd like to be doing these jobs that, you know, I think are rightfully pointed out as dream jobs and, and making a paycheck. We just can't agree to a deal that doesn't ensure for the future of writing as a profession and writers as as human beings who do this work right and so i would love and i think every person i've talked to on the picket line would love for this to be resolved as soon as possible it's just that they haven't come to the table the the studios with a serious proposal that that creates stability and security and helps ensure that for the future of writers and we're not going to negotiate against ourselves at this point like if they're not going to be serious we'll wait for them to be serious and and teamsters and and crew as re are respecting the picket lines but it's not just uh who's shutting down production i mean we've seen people from amazon on the picket lines of this from the starbucks union from freelance musicians there are students from cuny the city university of new york have been out and i think this is really a fight that's speaking to people across a lot of different industries because it is something that a lot of people are facing. You know, the specifics may be different from workplace to workplace, from industry to industry, but the broader themes I think are really resonating with people. And let me just add, Hollywood royalty is supporting the writers. Um, here in LA, where we record our show, mm -hmm. uh, Jay Leno brought donuts to the picket line outside Disney and yeah. Burbank. I read that Edie Falco refused to cross the picket line to promote her new series. Cynthia Nixon joined the picket line in Manhattan and said, without writers, there would be no television and there would be no film. So yeah. you got a lot of support. I mean, it's really wonderful to see that people with this level of public profile that are doing it. But people who are consistently marginalized by the industry historically, people of color, 
uh, members of the LGBTQIA community, women, um, writers from those backgrounds are going to be the, the people that feel it first when they're, when the studio squeezes people, when the studios squeeze people and make it harder to have a consistent career, when healthcare is harder to have. And, um, and you know, when you, when it's harder to afford to have a family to wait the, the months sometimes it takes between gigs. And I think that's like, it's really unfair. And it's really something that we're trying to fight against as a guild, but okay. to go back a step, there's only so much you'll be able to do without writers in the interim. The fact that the late night shows are already off the air, you know, that shows that like every day the work writers do is central to that production. You know, maybe Netflix has three months, but like, does NBC, does Disney, like maybe they do, maybe they don't, but them saying, oh, we can wait you out is just saying, we're going to continue to try to make you take less than you deserve as long as we can hold out. For them to brag about how much they've stockpiled isn't impressive to me. It just shows like, yeah, they'll, they'll continue to try to treat us badly as long as they can afford it. Josh Gondelman, you can read his piece about the strike. Writers like me have shut down Hollywood at thenation.com. Josh, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. It was a pleasure. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. One of the Senate Democrats up for re-election in 2024 is Sherrod Brown of Ohio, one of our heroes. We spoke with him in 2020 about politics and history and how he's won re-election in a state that is increasingly Republican. Of course, Sherrod Brown is the senior senator from Ohio, first elected in 2006. He was reelected in 2018. He won by seven points in a state Hillary Clinton had lost by eight points just two years earlier. Now he's got a new book out in paperback. It's called Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. It's an honor and a pleasure to say, Sherrod Brown, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be back on your show. Thank you. Thanks for speaking out as a progressive. Well, at the end of Desk 88, you talk about your own re-election in 2018. And let's say it again, you won by seven points in a state Hillary had lost by eight points just two years earlier. We have an important question about that. What are the lessons for Joe Biden in Ohio in 2020 from the experiences of Hillary in 2016 and you in 2018? Well, first of all, elections elections are only about whose side are you on. And Trump came to Ohio in 16 and convinced enough voters, uh, stunningly in many ways, enough voters that um, he was on their side. And he put out a phony populism that more and more people understand, more and more people are on to. Uh, and I, I, Biden needs to do what he's mostly doing, and that is talk about the dignity of work run a campaign and promise to run a government through the eyes of workers, make that contrast of the dignity of work with, with Trump's betrayal of workers, where Trump has opposed the minimum wage, taken away overtime for 100,000 Ohio workers, uh, taken away the unemployment benefit, $600 a week that kept hundreds of thousands of Ohioans out of poverty. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Ohioans lost their unemployment August 1st. 
as they did elsewhere in the country. How are they going to pay? They can't find jobs in this economy. How are they going to pay their 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 rent or their mortgage? How are they going to pay their gas bill? How are they going to provide food for their kids when they lost that $600 a week that, that really kept them out of poverty? So because elections are about contrast and Biden has been a friend of workers and Trump has betrayed them, I, I, there are, and there are way more examples than that. That's how to make that contrast with Trump. And I think you'll see enough of the Trump 16 voters move away from him towards Biden because of that. And I imagine Joe Biden knows all about how you won in 2018 after Hillary lost in 2016. Well, Biden is a smart guy and Biden's campaign has looked a lot at Ohio. And I, I think you can see in Biden, I mean, Biden at the Democratic Convention, Joe and the vice president, a number of others use the word dignity, dignity of work, the human dignity, the way Dr. King did. I mean, the, the term dignity of work is, is, is hardly my invention. Uh, it was um, Pope Leo is my first coming upon that term, who was the labor pope at the turn of the last century. And, and then Dr. King used the term dignity of work repeatedly. And King, King understood uh, the, the, the overlap of, of civil rights and workers and labor rights. And I mean, look where he was when he was assassinated. He was in Memphis fighting for the most, some of the most um, oppressed workers uh, in the country, workers almost entirely black or maybe all black, not paid well, few benefits, terrible working conditions. A couple of workers had been killed. I don't remember precisely, but, but I think killed by a garbage compactor only in the few weeks leading up to the strike. Uh, so Dr. King understood dignity of work. And as, I mean, well, interestingly, back um your, your, your U.S. Senator, Kamala Harris, soon after she was in office, she and I were sitting on the Senate floor one day after the Dr. King holiday, and we were talking about our speeches at Dr. King holidays, and uh, she, I think, in L.A., I'm not sure, and I was in Cleveland, and, and we were sitting on the floor, and she said in the Senate, and she we're talking, she said, what did you talk about? I talked about the dignity of work, and I was quoting King, and, and about a week later, she walks up to me, and she hands me a book that's, the name of the book was All Work Has Dignity. And or all labor has dignity. I think it was all labor has dignity. It was a compilation of King's speeches to unions and to worker groups um, in the last 10 years of his life. And King, in the last years of his life, he was more and more intertwined with the labor movement. Much of the labor movement, very supportive, not all the labor movement. They would be now, but uh, times have changed in some ways for the better. Well, the... Um the new paperback of your book, Desk 88, has an afterword. Seems like it was written last week. It takes up the question of what the way you put it is when the stars next align for progressives to be in power in Washington. And that may well happen on January 20th. The polls say Biden is likely to win the election. The Democrats will take control of the Senate. Uh, so let us assume Biden takes the oath of office on January 20th and a new Democratic Senate is seated. What are your priorities for that day, that week, that month? Well, the priorities, I think, of mainstream Democrats, and that's from Bernie Sanders uh, and Elizabeth Warren and me and Joe Biden and, and uh, you know, Kamala Harris and a number of others, is we need, we need to move quickly. Uh, we need to do things that will give people benefits immediately, such as minimum wage, allowing Medicare buy-in at 55, uh, the giving unions the right to organize. We need, we, need to do, we need to expand democracy. And that means the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It means ending the redistricting abuses. 
It means giving people, restoring democracy that much of it has been compromised. Um, but I, I, I think of it in this way, that, that we, that there are three great moral issues of our times, climate change that your state has been so afflicted with, not just now, but other times, climate change, race, racial disparities and income inequality. And I think Democrats will govern always with those three things. And that, that's immigration reform. It's a higher minimum wage. It's a tax system, the child tax credit, where low-income people get a better deal from their government instead of tax breaks for the rich. We do tax breaks for, for lower-income working families. We know who the essential workers are. And the pandemic has been the great revealer. It's shown who the essential workers are in this country. They're mostly women. They're disproportionately people of color and they're mostly low paid and they they you know they drive the buses they take care of they they change the linen at the hospital they they work in grocery stores and drug stores they ex are exposed to the virus not making a lot of money then they go home anxious about whether they're exposing their families they have to they have to be at the front of the line this time uh, I want to talk about your book, Desk 88, which is a wonderful history of American politics seen from the vantage point of all the of different senators who've occupied your desk on the on the Senate floor. Some amazing people occupied your desk, and we have some things we need to learn from their uh, experiences. One of them is George McGovern, of course, a hero of ours. He was right about pretty much everything especially the war in Vietnam when he ran in 1972, but he's also the biggest loser in the modern history of the Democratic Party. He, 72, he carried only Massachusetts in the District of Columbia, and really Nixon beating McGovern in 72 was much worse than Trump beating Hillary, because Hillary, of course, won the popular vote by 3 million votes. McGovern lost by almost 18 million votes. I know one of the your earliest experience in politics, you were a teenager in 1972, was that you worked on the McGovern campaign. What was your experience? And looking back on that, why do you think McGovern lost so badly? I would I would choose to talk about the the great and the positive things McGovern did, but I'll I'll try to answer that. I I was a teen. I was 19. I didn't know much about. I mean, I thought McGovern was going to win right up until election day. So it tells you how much I really understood politics. But I mean, because I could see then he was right. He was right on a better tax system. He was right from a progressive viewpoint. Nixon, well, Nixon cheated in the campaign. We know that. Uh, Nixon um, also, you know, he he played to the racial fears. He does some of the things Trump does. Um, he learned in, from, from Wallace's 68 campaign, Nixon learned how to play to bigotry and race and started something called the Southern Strategy, as you remember. But it's a different time now, so I don't, I don't make that comparison because Nixon won that Trump's going to because I think it's a very different, a very different country. But McGovern, McGovern, McGovern was a guy that um, he really, he's, he will be remembered as he helped us, as he was, um, he was JFK's uh, food uh, ambassador, I think. And um, when he met Pope John the 23rd, McGovern told me this, although I've also seen it in writing. He said, John the 23rd greeted him and said, when the Lord, when you meet the Lord, you can say you help feed the poor. 
And um, that was probably the, I mean, you don't get many compliments that, like that, whether you're religious or not, the Pope saying you fed the poor, right? And McGovern <laughs> devoted much of his life to all these programs, including near the end of his career. That we, we as a nation had a real commitment. Again, we've pulled back because of Trump, but we had a real commitment to provide every possible child in school and the developing world with at least one hot meal a day. And my wife, Connie, and I were in Haiti um, in, a, in a clinic working with some people. And I saw one of those feeding programs and the kids, I mean, it, it was one really good hot meal they got every day. And that was something they hadn't had. McGovern, McGovern went to his grave knowing he did that. Well, your chapter on McGovern has, has what I think is my favorite quote in the whole book. You quote Tip O'Neill, the longtime head of House Democrats, who said to McGovern, quote, I can count a hundred congressmen who are here because of your 1972 campaign, close quote, the biggest loss the Democrats had suffered in modern history. Please explain that. And I wasn't in Congress then, so I wasn't one of the hundred, but there were all kinds of people that started their political, that, that were interested in politics because McGovern pulled them in. They, they had maybe been, they had protested the war. They were interested in the environment. The first Earth Day took place two years earlier in 1970. They had come out of the civil rights movement and McGovern was their entry vehicle into political action, into electoral politics. And that, that meant that a whole lot of people that had worked with McGovern that had the same crushing election night that, that all of us had that were involved. And they decided, you know, this isn't the end, this is the beginning. They then ran, two years later, I ran for the legislature um, and got elected in Ohio. And I, I, don't, I don't know if I would have run if it weren't for McGovern, but it certainly made a big impact on me that electoral politics is something that, that I can do and that we need people, we need progressive, outspoken, progressive activists to do it. When we look at Donald Trump, we think of the Republican Party that he's changed so drastically. And we wonder, why haven't more Republicans said this is not what we want our party to be? There aren't very many Republicans who've changed their minds about the trajectory of their party. Your book has some fascinating examples of people in politics who did change their minds. They're really my favorite people in your book. Starting with Hugo Black from Alabama, elected to the Senate in 1926, he he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, but he changed his mind in and changed sides in the great battles of the 1930s. It's a fabulous story, and thank you for telling it. Summarize it briefly for us now. Well, okay, he uh, Black when he Black was a trial lawyer and a judge, and I'm uh, what they called a judge in Alley in Birmingham, and he. Um, when he ran for office, he said, I have to choose between the big mules. The big mules were the power companies, the steel companies, the mining companies, the people that controlled Alabama. And blacks weren't voting in those days, as of course you know. Um, he had to choose between the big mules and the KKK. He said those were the only two choices to run for office. I, I don't know that that was true, but that's the way he looked at it. And he, um, he disclaimed his membership. He never denied it. He quickly renounced the Klan. Um, he still wasn't particularly good on race until the mid-30s, until his second term. And he was um, he probably did more for workers than anybody in the Senate, except for um, Senator Wagner of New York, in the minimum wage and the eight-hour workday and, 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 and collective bargaining. So I, I heard what you said at the beginning of that question about Republicans now. 
I and I I, um, I wrote a um, I, I wrote in the, in the in the afterward that I wrote this past summer. Um, I spoke about impeachment and the virus and um, watching watching a bunch of my spineless colleagues. Uh, history will treat them pretty cruelly as they deserve. That they that even even when this week or two weeks ago when Trump showed such disrespect for for our fallen troops, for soldiers that died in France or died wherever, that Trump showed such disrespect for them. I heard hardly a Republican criticize it. They are, they are afraid. I wrote in the impeachment part of that last chapter, they were driven by fear. They were afraid Trump would call them a name or campaign against them or show up at their state and say something negative. And they have shown amazing cowardice in, in the face of this immoral, racist president. And I, I don't, I don't know if it will cost them politically. Some of them live in states that they could not lose, but some of them don't. And I think I know history will treat them badly. Last question: Of course, the 2020 presidential election. Everyone I know is full of anxiety about what Trump. And the Republicans are doing to prevent Democrats from voting, to screw up the count, to undermine and confuse the results. And they're even more worried about what Trump might do after he loses in that period between November and January 20th. Are you at all optimistic we're going to get through that period with our democracy intact? We're going to get through it. He's going to lose and he's going to cry foul play he may try to you know they'll the democrats are more likely to vote early republicans are more likely to vote election day the initial numbers may show trump winning he's going to declare victory he's going to say democrats um that these votes are all corrupt and rigged and he's going to do all that stuff and in the end the secret service and the military will remove him from his office if he doesn't move himself by january 20th I feel that we're going to beat him. I, I'm, I'm concerned about his cheating and his lying. We've never seen a president do anything like this. Nixon at his worst wasn't this. But it means it means two things. It means we've got to really, we've really got to be active, the kind of activists, and get every possible vote, including those of you that live in states that are clearly going our way or clearly going the other way. That that you do all you can with any relatives, younger people, especially in other states or even in your home state. Um, and it means that um, we've got to be vigilant, but it, it also means vote early, that we should vote. Um, we should vote. If you could vote in person early, a month before the election, like you can in Ohio, go vote early or send in your absentee ballot. And the post office absolutely can handle these ballots. I have no doubt, is in spite of the, the um, idiot that's now running the post office, the political hack, there's no doubt they can, the postal service, the workers, I meet with postal workers pretty often, there, there is no doubt they will run this election. This may, these mail-in votes the way they need to. I'll give you one set of numbers. Country of 300 million people, right? The Postal Service handles 400 million pieces of mail per day, 400 million. The most people that would vote absentee would be 150 million over the space of a month. So you've got, they handle 400 million a day. They can sure handle an extra 150 million over a month's period. So Postal Service will do it right. We should vote early uh, and we should be vigilant about Trump's cheating. Sharon Brown, of course, he's the senior senator from Ohio. His new book out in paperback is Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. It's a terrific book. Thank you, Senator Brown. It was a pleasure to be on again. Good to see you again. We spoke with Sherrod Brown in October 2020. 
Finally, it's time for your Minnesota moment. News from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. A Minnesota woman finished first among the American women runners in the Boston Marathon. Emma Bates came in fifth behind the women from Kenya who always win. 30,000 runners took part in the 127th edition of the race on the 10th anniversary of the bombing that killed three people near the finish line. A dozen former champions ran the race, along with participants from 120 countries and all 50 states. The race also included 264 members of the community of those injured in the attack or their friends and family. Emma Bates had never run in the Boston Marathon before. Nobody can explain why a woman from Elk River would be the fastest American woman in the Boston Marathon. Elk River is 35 miles northwest of the Twin Cities. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.